We read God's Word this evening in the last section of the book of Romans. Romans 12 through 16 is that second main part of the book. And our scripture reading this evening is Romans 15. If you look across the page earlier to Romans 14, it begins that we ought to receive the weak. And now 15 begins, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. This is God's Word in Romans 15. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but, as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded, that is, like Christ, toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that ye may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wherefore, receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. And that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written, For this cause I will confess thee among the Gentiles, and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord all ye Gentiles, and laud him all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles in him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort, as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel of God, that the offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have therefore, whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed, through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about unto Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another man's foundation." But as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see. And they that have not heard shall understand. For which cause also I have been much hindered from coming to you. 
But now, having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come unto you, whensoever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey, and to be brought on my way thitherward by you, if first I be somewhat filled with your company. But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints, for it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. When therefore I have performed this, and have sealed to them this fruit, I will come by you into Spain. And I am sure that when I come unto you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. That's the reading of the chapter after this. In chapter 16, you'll notice is mostly greetings to individual people. So the book then comes to a close there. The text this evening is verse 14, where Paul says, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that ye also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. As I said, this text comes at the end of the epistle. The beginning, large part of the epistle to the Romans, chapters 1 through 11, is the doctrine especially of justification. What Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, that God planned in eternity to give to us. And the second part of the epistle, chapters 12 through 16, is that justification now applied in sanctification. That's the doctrine that's emphasized in chapters 12 and following where our text is found. Whom God justifies is the biblical truth. He also sanctifies. Or to put it differently, what God in eternity planned for us and Jesus Christ obtained for us Now the Holy Spirit gives to us. Or to put it differently yet, so that the truth is cemented in our minds, the righteousness that God declares to us and grants to us by imputation, that righteousness is now worked in us. So that what we are legally in justification, we become actually in sanctification. 
First half of Romans 1 through 12, 11, second part of Romans 12 through 16. Our text is found here. Now, the reason that I explain that is that the doctrine of sanctification teaches that God works this work in us by the exhortations and admonitions of His Word. That is, the righteousness that Christ provides for us is given to us by the preaching of the Word. And that's why Paul began in this last section beseeching the people and exhorting the people and admonishing the saints and sometimes even threatening the saints and warning the saints because he knew that this work of sanctification God accomplishes by the admonitions of the Word. So it would be good for you in your devotions to scan and then read Romans 12 through 16 and see how that works out. Don't be conformed to this world, Paul says at the beginning. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's a reasonable service. I warn you, don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Live in unity and peace. And so the exhortations and admonitions proceed through chapter 12. Then he comes to chapter 13 and says you have to live in the world. And so you better pay your taxes and submit to the government. And then in chapter 14, as I indicated, you're going to have weak people in the church you need to deal with. Don't deal with them roughly. In fact, chapter 15 begins... You who are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak. And on and on go the exhortations and admonitions until finally Paul comes to our text and says, that's, that's enough. I'm finished admonishing you because though I could go on and on and on in my admonitions, I don't need to because you're able to do that. So I'm going to sign off in my letter after I express my greetings to all the different saints and I expect you now to keep admonishing one another. And you're able to do that because you're good. You're full of goodness and you're filled with knowledge. Farewell, says Paul. My letter is over. Now it's your work to continue what I've been doing. That's a very surprising truth. Paul says the work that I did now you can do. The exhortations I offered to you, you can continue? Exactly, yes. You need, therefore, to have confidence in your own abilities. You need to be persuaded about yourselves what Paul was persuaded of the Romans. And that now is our text. Remember, I am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you are full of knowledge and filled with goodness able to admonish one another. So let's look at that amazing truth and then see what calling is implied here that we have to edify each other. And then in the third place, the needed confidence. That is, you and you and you and you and all of you are able because you and you 
and you and all of you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. And therefore, you all are able to do what Paul was doing in chapters 12, verse 1, through 15, verse 13. Able to admonish one another. The amazing truth is simply this. All of the church members are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. And I want to parse that out. All of the believers are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. There are three things that are very, very clear there. First of all, the child of God has goodness in him and knowledge in him. He doesn't say the child of God has good gifts in him or good works that he's performed. He says you are full of goodness. He's referring to your disposition, to your qualifications, to your nature. He could say about anybody, you're full of good works, because even the unbeliever does good works, that is, that are apparently good by nature. They do the things contained in the law. He said that in chapter 2, verse 4. Besides that, he didn't even know the Roman Christians. We read the whole chapter because I wanted to show that he anticipated seeing them. He hadn't ever visited there. He was going to, God willing, but he hadn't met them enough to say, you're full of good works. He says because he knows them as Christians, you're full of goodness. Goodness of character, moral and ethical goodness, mercy and kindness and a desire to bless and a gracious disposition. That's amazing. Paul says this about new Christians. He also says you're full of knowledge, full of goodness, full of knowledge. And again, we need to set that off from the kind of knowledge that non-Christians have and that even the devils have. Paul had said in Romans 1, the non-Christians know God. They know God. They have a certain amount of knowledge of God that they suppress, and God judges them for that suppression. But I'm not talking about the knowledge that non-Christians have, Paul says, and I'm not talking about the kind of knowledge that the devil has and trembles with that knowledge. I'm talking about the true spiritual knowledge of faith in Jesus Christ. The knowledge of what God the Father does in our election and creation. The knowledge of what God the Son does in our redemption. The knowledge of what the Spirit does in our sanctification. The spiritual knowledge of faith and love. You are full of and filled with knowledge. That's the first truth. You have goodness and you have knowledge. The second amazing truth here is that the child of God not only has knowledge and goodness, but is filled with knowledge and goodness. And to illustrate that truth, I want to use or read texts where those words are used in other ways, full and filled. The word that goes with goodness in our text is a word that is used to describe a wicked man's eyes that are full of of adultery, nothing else in his view. Or a drunken man is full of wine so that it permeates him, full. And an unrighteous person is filled with malice and envy and strife and deceit so that nothing positive exists in them, in him. 
So, the Christian is full of goodness. Or to use a couple of positive examples in the Bible, you children remember when the disciples after Jesus died were fishing all night with a net on the left side of the boat and caught nothing? And Jesus from the shore called out to them, my friends, throw the net on the right side of the boat. And when they did, it was full of fish. That's the word that's used to describe the relationship of us to goodness. We're full of goodness. The word that's used with knowledge is a little bit different, but very similar. Now emphasizing spread. It's used to describe the smell of the fragrance of incense in the most holy place or the holy place. You light a a fragrant candle and it won't take very long before the smell of that candle permeates your rooms. The word is used to describe Jerusalem when Jesus was teaching. You couldn't go anywhere in Jerusalem without having heard of Jesus' teaching. Filled with it. And the word is used to describe the upper room where the 120 were gathered together at the day of Pentecost when the sound of the mighty rushing wind filled the room. And that's the word that's used to describe the relationship of us to knowledge. Full of goodness and filled with knowledge. That's amazing. To the brim. Permeates. Dominates you as Christians. And then the third amazing truth here is that you all can be described that way. The apostle wasn't writing a private letter here to the elders saying, please don't tell the rest of the congregation this, but you men, specially qualified, are filled with goodness and full of knowledge. He's writing a public letter to the whole congregation that the men and the women and the children can all hear. You, the apostle says, are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. And I make that point because the elders might have a complex thinking that because the minister went to seminary, he's the one that's full of knowledge and filled with goodness and not them. Or because the women might say, having a complex of their own, probably the men can be described this way, but not us. Or the young people think, well, that might be true of dad and mom and the old people in the congregation, but not us. Or, finally, the new Christians might say, well, we just joined the church. That can't be a description of us. This must be true for the old Christians, to which Paul says, no, no, this is true of all of the people of God. And to underline that point, think about who it is that says this to them. The Apostle Paul. You know that the Apostle Paul was born up in Tarsus, but his mother sent him down to Jerusalem to be trained under Gamaliel in the best school in Jerusalem and was trained there as a Pharisee. He knew the Old Testament Scripture. He was on the top of the elite, of the educated. And then, when he became converted on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, now come with me. I'm going to have private instruction with you for three years in the wilderness so that you know 
the New Testament version of the Old Testament Scripture. That man, Paul said to the new Christians in Rome, you are all full of goodness and filled with knowledge. And because you are, now we anticipate the second point coming up in a moment, because you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge, you are able to do work in the congregation that you might not imagine you have the ability to do. But we're not there yet. This is, I say, an amazing truth that you have goodness and knowledge in you, that you're full of goodness and knowledge, and that all of you are full of goodness and knowledge. That's amazing for a Reformed church to hear, probably not in an Arminian congregation. An Arminian would hear this and shrug and say, well, we've always believed that people are good. Even non-Christians are good. They have a lot of good in them and a lot of knowledge in them. But not in a Reformed church that emphasizes the truth of depravity and underlies that, underlines that truth of depravity by saying total depravity. And so when a minister stands in the pulpit and says to us, you are good, we maybe stand back and get nervous. You are full of goodness? Really? Aren't we a Reformed church that teaches the doctrine of total depravity and applies that to us? Aren't we? And in fact, Paul, if we may address Paul now, didn't you just finish teaching us in Romans 3 about man who is so corrupt that it's as though the poison of asps is under his lips? Didn't you, Paul, teach us that? And in fact, Paul, didn't you say in Romans 7 verse 8 or 18 that about you, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwells no good thing? In fact, Paul, I'll read it to you, what you wrote to us. Now are you not contradicting yourself when in Romans fifteen fourteen you say to us, you're full of goodness and filled with knowledge? How can that be? It's a very important question. And the answer to that we need to get straight and understand very clearly. The understanding of that problem is found in the text itself when those words full and filled are put in a tense and a voice that indicate, and now you need to put on your English grammar hat and remember what you learned in school, but I'll explain it to you. It's a perfect passive verb. And the perfect tense indicates that what we are now, we were not formerly. That is, filled is the description of us today, but it wasn't a description of us prior to our being Christian. And then secondly, the passive voice is teaching that what we are today, different than what we were before we were Christians, didn't happen because we did something to ourselves, but something was done to us. So the change from prior to Christianity to Christianity, and the fact that what happened to us was performed upon us by someone else. And now translate that into simple language that even the children can understand, Jesus came to you who were empty. 
And when he came into you, he filled you up with himself and made you good with his own goodness. Jesus came to you who were empty and dead and bad and filled with nothing but the knowledge of evil and gave you himself. That's the doctrine of regeneration. Dead prior to regeneration, alive now. Empty and devoid of Jesus Christ before faith, now filled with our Lord Jesus Christ. So that, now get this so clearly, you don't miss it, What we say about ourselves now is twofold. I have an old man now, and that old man is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and he's going to be with me till the day I die. He's depraved. He's totally depraved. But there's a second thing that I need to say about myself and you about yourself. I have a new man. And that new man is Christ in me. And I'm alive, no longer dead. I'm filled with good, no longer only evil. I have knowledge of spiritual things and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that why the rest of the Scripture can say what it does? Like 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That's a description of Christians. And why Galatians 5 can say that one of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness. The very same word that's used in our text. And why Paul could say in Ephesians chapter 2, You who were dead are now alive. There's two very important doctrines that are taught in Reformed churches because of this text and texts like it. One of them is the priesthood of believers. And that truth is taught because of this text, because this text says all of you have these gifts and all of you are able to do what you are called to do. Let's look at B.C. before Christ and A.D. in the year of our Lord with regard to the church ecclesiastically and then we'll come to individually before Christ in me and after Christ in me. But first before Christ ecclesiastically in the Old Testament that is before the Spirit of Christ was poured out the church was pretty poor There were only a select few who held the offices that enabled them to do very useful things for the rest in the church. Very few prophets, David, Isaiah, Daniel, Moses, who could speak on behalf of God in in a way that was beneficial to others. And the rest of the people were very, very little and insignificant with regard to prophesying. Very few were in the office of king or judge. Moses was. Samson was. David was. 
But for the rest, most of the people were weak and fairly insignificant, that is, unable to do much on behalf of the other people of God as kings. And the same is true for priests. Very few were priests. Aaron at the beginning, Aaron's descendants. Samuel was a priest, but for the rest, the common people were not priests. They were not able to lead the people into the presence of God. Just a few were. But then came the New Testament. And in the New Testament, the Spirit was poured out upon all flesh so that your sons and your daughters can prophesy and your young men and your old men can dream dreams and see visions and your handmaidens and your servants can too. And that reality was prophesied in the Old Testament in a very beautiful story in the time of Moses when Moses said, God, I can't take it. They had just left the land of Egypt. They were in the wilderness and all of the people were lining up at Moses' tent door for advice. Moses said, I can't do this, God. So God said to Moses, all right, bring 70 men that you know are the leaders in Israel to you at the tabernacle, and I'll put my spirit upon them. And God did that. And they began to prophesy. And they were put into a special office. But two of those 70 were not in the camp, but prophesying at a distance. And when a couple of young men saw that, they ran to Moses to report, Moses, Moses, they're not supposed to be doing that. And Moses, in somewhat of an exasperation, said, I wish to God everyone were prophets. I would, God, that all were prophets. And that prayer of Moses was answered A.D. B.C., very few prophets. A.D., everyone is a prophet. Everyone is a priest and everyone is a king. That's the doctrine that's taught because of a text like ours. And the other doctrine has to do with you individually and corrects a very important, a very serious misunderstanding. And that misunderstanding is what comes out every time I teach catechism in the vacant churches, and I do that regularly because you need a catechism teacher. And I did that here too. And because I usually teach the Heidelberg Catechism and the Essentials classes, one of the first Lord's Days that come up in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 3, that asks about total depravity. And I asked the young people, 13 and 14 and 15 year olds, are you able to do any good? And they take a couple of steps back that is, emotionally and intellectually from me because they're scared of that question. So I ask them again, are you, are you able to do any good? And usually there's a bold one or two who say, absolutely not. We're totally depraved. And then I patiently need and carefully instruct them that though their old man is depraved, they have a new man Christ is in them, and because Christ is in them, they are able to do good. Not naturally, spiritually. Not because of anything in themselves, but because Christ has now come to them. I usually get to the right answer to that question by asking another question. Are you dead in sin? And then the light goes on. 
And they realized the truth of the apostle in Ephesians 2. You who were dead are now alive. And being alive, you are able to do what God created you to do. The good works that he ordained from the very beginning. So that's the amazing truth. All of the people of God are full of goodness and filled with knowledge. Now, able to admonish one another. Pick up the context. Remember what Paul was doing in chapters 12 through 16? Admonishing because it's by that word. Sanctification is worked in the people. Paul stops at 1514. And then in the rest of that chapter, as you read, talked about his desire to be with them and his commitment to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And then the book ends. He stopped at 1514, remember, because he's teaching. This is your work now. You pick up where I left off. You are able to admonish one another. Now do that, is the word of God to you tonight. Do that. And then you mustn't think that admonish simply means the kind of word that the parent or the teacher gives to you like this. That word admonish does have that narrow and negative meaning when it means warn and threaten and rebuke and chastise with the voice. It does. It's used that way in 1 Corinthians 10. The Old Testament history was written for our admonition. See what they did? fornicated, idol-worshipped idols, don't you? The Old Testament was written for your admonition. Titus 3 verse 10 says, reject a heretic after the first and second admonition. He's preaching falsehood. Admonish him, warn him, and then put him out if he doesn't repent. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Paul says the unruly must be warned. 2 Thessalonians 3, 15, when a person is excommunicated, don't count them as a sinner, as an enemy, but admonish him as you would a brother. And so Romans 12 through 15 is filled with those kinds of warnings too about sin and the danger of sin. And in our lives, we're called to do that as well. When a brother errs, we must admonish him. That's the whole principle of Matthew 18. If a member sins against you, go to him by yourself and admonish him. Convict him of sin. There is that narrow, negative aspect to this calling. But it's not only narrow and negative. It's very, very broad and includes many positive things. So we take back the wagging finger and we express emotion however we can that indicates positive comfort, help, hope, love, encouragement, and the rest. So the word is used that way too in Ephesians 6. You children, the Bible says, are brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And your parents once in a while warn you, but most of the time they're admonishing you in this positive way teaching you, encouraging you, lifting you up, and so forth. And so Paul uses the word in Colossians 3.16 and says, when you sing, you're teaching and admonishing one another in your singing, 
teaching and admonishing. I don't find very often in the Psalms that the people of God need to wag their fingers at one another. But we're teaching each other and we're encouraging one another. And so Paul spent three years, day and night, Acts 20 says, admonishing the people with tears. And it wasn't all warning. Now read Romans 12 through 15, 14 and find that though there are some warnings, it's mostly encouragement, positive encouragement. And so we need to do that with one another. Our calling is to be a prophet. And as a prophet, we speak. And when someone's discouraged, we encourage them with the word of the gospel. When somebody's distant from the Lord Jesus Christ, we take them by the hand and we lead them as priests into His presence through the cross and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when somebody is fighting against sin and losing the battle, we go to him as a fellow king and help him engage in that battle and fight by faith and receive the victory by faith. That's the calling that we have in the congregation. And we're all able to do that. We're all able to admonish one another. You are prophets and priests and kings, and you are, and all of you are. You can. Let me make the sermon very practical and pointed now. Not this way, but this way. And address in the first place the elders who sometimes have that complex I was talking about, thinking that because the minister was trained, spent eight years in college and seminary, he's the one able to do the work of prophesying to the people. Of course, he does that on the pulpit, but he's the one who ought to prophesy in the counseling room and at the hospital bedside and in the homes of families where there's trouble. Send the minister. And then the elders need to be reminded, no, brothers, you are able to admonish the others in the congregation. And you in the congregation must be encouraged to seek out the elders too for counsel, for encouragement, for instruction, for help. And if perhaps you have a wayward son or daughter, don't call the minister, call your elder. And don't look, people of God, at your plight in your troubles as though you have only two options, the minister or some outside counselor. Now your options are, number one, your elders. And if they are not able to help you, then they will direct you to the minister. This is where we receive our help. Elders, you're able. I'm persuaded of you, my brethren. Members, you are also, all of you, Let's start at Bible study. You open the Word of God there. Some speak. Some don't. That's not a rebuke of those who don't, but it's an encouragement to those who don't that you can, you're able, from the Word of God that you have before you, to speak to the others to help them, to bless them, to comfort them, perhaps to warn them, and rebuke them. But you see a member struggling 
then after the Bible study is finished, go over to their home and talk to them. Ask them and speak. Be a prophet. Be a priest. Be a king for them. Young people, you can too. You can. You have friends with burdens. Let's say you know a young person in your grade whose parents are separated and divorcing. You say, I don't know what to say. But you know they're hurting. They're pained like you can't imagine pain could be. I'm persuaded of you, young people, that you are full of goodness and filled with knowledge so that those words might not flow out as eloquently as you would like. You are able to admonish in a positive way your friend at school that's hurting. I'm persuaded of you, young people, who at school have your group, perhaps, and now look, the door is closed in your group, and you're aware of somebody else in the class or in your area who doesn't have friends, maybe has some special needs that keeps him or her distant from them. I'm persuaded of you, young people, that you are able to open up that group and encircle him or her and speak words that comfort him or her. I'm persuaded of you, my brothers and sisters, that you're able to encourage and bless and do good. I'm persuaded of you, young people, that when you see one of your friends who's doing things that he ought not do, whether that's in dating or other settings, that you're able to say something to them. Or when another is depressed and discouraged, go out of your way and speak to them. This is the truth of the Word of God. Mothers, probably mothers are the last ones who need this encouragement because they were forced by dint of the fact that they had children and that those children needed to learn. You mothers are able, and you know that, from the children's earliest days to take their little hand and, as it were, lead them to Jesus and say, this is who He is. This is what He's done for His people. This is what He calls us to do, to know Him, believe Him. And then you mothers are able, when you see sin battling against the children as they're growing up, you're able to engage in that battle with them and for them and warn them of the consequences of giving up. You're able to speak to them, lead them to Jesus. And so if you mothers are able to do that, then you fathers are too. Now, tomorrow evening, when supper time comes, and you open the Bible to that mark where you ended last night, and you read again from the Word. You are able, men, to instruct your wife and your children. You are. You might not be able to say profound things, educated things, but you are able, because you're full of goodness and filled with knowledge, 
to say something in response to the word, to the edification of your family around that table with you. Now, all of you remember, all of you remember, and I must too, that what comes out of my mouth when I'm leading them to Christ, what comes out of my mouth when I'm helping them battle sin and comforting them in their discouragement is what's in me. That is, the same thing that has filled me to give me this goodness and knowledge must be what comes out of me. And all of us know it's Christ that filled me and makes me good. And so Christ must be what comes out of my mouth. You elders to the members of the congregation, you members at Bible study, you friends at school, you parents and teachers, what comes out of your mouth when you exercise this office must be the Lord Jesus Christ that filled you up. Lead them to Christ who is the priest and Christ who is the prophet and Christ who is the king. And then because we need to be on, I realize that this raises some questions. You may wonder in the first place, does this not diminish the special offices? If everybody is prophesying, why do you need one prophet here? And if everybody is engaging in the work of kings, why do you need a row of elders there? And if everyone is ministering mercy, why do you need a row of deacons there? That's a good question. There are times in the history of the church that the special offices are diminished in importance. But the reaction to diminishing special offices must not be to eliminate the office that all of us have and the ability that's there in each of us. Or maybe you ask, does this make unqualified people counselors? Well, it certainly must not. In cases of great need and serious trouble, the people of God must not imagine that all of them are able to do everything. And we'll come back to that in just a moment too. And then you might ask, does that mean that automatically everyone is able to exercise themselves as prophets, priests, and kings, that just because they were baptized with water and are members of this church that they're able? No. This presupposes healthy people. This presupposes people who listen in sermons and learn in catechism and open the Word of God because insofar as we do that, we're qualified. And insofar as we don't, we're unqualified. But let me be positive. The more often you're in the Word, the more capable you will be. I Do not elevate myself by saying this now, but just give it to you as an illustration. When I am called to bring a word to the people of God in trouble, what often I find that I bring them is what I read in my own devotions that morning. And so you may too. You know a man with a drinking problem And you know you ought to say something as a prophet with this kind of admonition. Not the first time you meet him or her, 
But you don't. You don't. And then five years later, his marriage ends because the alcohol loosened his tongue and his treatment of his wife loosened the controls on his eyes so that his eyes wandered where they ought not go. And his marriage ends. And you have to say to yourself, I, as a prophet and a king, didn't do what I was able to do. You know of a couple that doesn't control their children. Now, the little rascals are funny, cute perhaps. But in a few years, those little rascals are going to become big rascals and wayward and troublemakers in the church. And you didn't say anything because you made all kinds of excuses. Other people have said things, they wouldn't listen to me, they're stubborn, it's cute. And when those little rascals become big rascals, you realize that you should have. And this word of God tonight is to you, not ten years from now, but now. I'm persuaded of you, my brothers and sisters, that you're able. Now do what you're able to do. And imagine the blessings in the congregation in a church where everyone not trying to put their nose in other people's business, but to be ministers and helpers for everyone. Imagine, the minister and consistory will not be overwhelmed as most are now. Most are now. Remember Moses. When Moses was troubled, he was not asking God for help teaching catechism. He was asking God for help with the troubles that the people of God were bringing him. And when God appointed 70 to help them, that helped a great deal. But Moses said, I pray for the day when everyone is able to do this. And the day has come. A.D. in the church. The day has come when you're all able to do this. In the second place, the advantage will be that outside counselors, though we may use them, and sometimes must use them, will not be seen as the immediate and only alternative. For 2,000 years, the church did pretty well without specialists in each sin problem. And we can too. Many times, we may use outside counselors. Sometimes we ought to use specialists But we ought not look at them as the immediate and only alternative. And then in a very different vein, the advantage will be that it's not just the men that we're looking at in the congregation to be useful in the church, but we'll look at the women. The women, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your handmaids and maidens shall speak. There will be more Miriam's and Deborah's, and Lydia's, and Phoebe's, and Hannah's, and Mary's, and Priscilla's, and Martha's, and Dorcas's in the church of Christ. You ladies are useful in the church of Christ, and we're very, very thankful for your abilities. 
But most of all, people of God, the, the advantage will be that Christ Himself is heard more and more, not just from the mouth of the minister and the elders and the deacons, but from every single member of the church, because that with which we are filled, Christ, will come spilling out of our mouths in an interest to help the weaker brother. Do you need me to preach this third point? I'm persuaded of you. That's the point. And I've said it already. That is, what Paul was persuaded of the saints in Rome, I may be persuaded with regard to you. Does Paul address the likelihood that they were doubting themselves? It seems to me that's what I hear when I hear him saying that. I'm persuaded of you, my brother. And he's not just saying you have that ability, but he says, you need to know that I'm convinced that you have that ability. And so tonight, you mustn't be afraid that the minister is flattering you. You mustn't imagine that this risks puffing the people of God up. Paul knew that risk. The Holy Spirit who inspired Paul knew that risk. And yet he had Paul say, to these new Christians, you can. You can. So let's grow in our ability to use our gifts. Let's remember that we're all prophets and priests and kings. Let's be reminded that though we have that old man against which we must fight, we also have a new man, and that's Christ in us. And by Christ in us, we are able to do so much for the good of the church of Christ and the honor of Christ, whose church it is. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the gospel. Christ who gave Himself for us now comes to live in us. The cross by which He redeemed us is now the cross by which He sanctifies us. And we pray, Lord, that by the preaching of the Word and by that Word that we speak, blessing may come upon Thy people, that we may not fail in our duties when we see those who are in need. And forgive us, Lord, when we have and use the words that we speak so weakly and so feebly. Use them for the good of thy people. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.